and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded view in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, July 21st, we are studying Psalm 115. In today's text, the psalmist asks that the Lord's name would receive the glory. Since idols are of no use at all, the Lord is the only trust and help and shield. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves as pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He is also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be on as always. Pastor Heidi, talk to us about the Psalms in general. How should we approach this book and receive the Psalms as Christians? The Psalms, in a probably the only way I can really think to describe them, are the the song of the songs of the Bible, like the the expressions that the the various psalmists came up with under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to express certain feelings, to express certain desires, to express questions. You know, they're basically this is the Bible, the the, the part of the Bible where we are talking back to God, right? That we are calling on him to do things, especially in the midst of various situations. And of course, we'll see the situation that this psalm in particular probably addresses. But each one of them is is meant to describe something about what it means to live as one of God's people in all of their different, uh, whatever situation we might find that in, right? Yep. So talk to us more specifically about Psalm 115. There's not a superscription to this psalm, just jumps right into the text, to the prayer. What kind of historical background, context do we need to help us understand this psalm? Well, I think the things that we can gather from the psalm itself suggest that we are dealing with a a situation where our God's people are in some kind of distress, and we can talk about that a little bit more specifically as we go along in the psalm. Uh, but I also do think it's interesting that this psalm is one of the psalms that was traditionally used at Passover, and so for that reason also has significance for the New Testament, because in Matthew 26, for example, when it says that uh, they sang a hymn and then Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives, uh, this would have been one of the hymns that they sang was Psalm 115. So, I mean, yep. there, there's that going on as well. Well, and I, yeah, I think I, I've heard, I think it's, is it Psalm 113 through 118 is sometimes, I think I've heard it called the Hallel, and this yes. is that, part of that section, is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yep, so yep. Go ahead, talk more about that. Well, because these these psalms were kind of the the liturgical, liturgically appointed psalms for the Passover, especially in the time of the Second Temple. And so everything from, like, I think it was 113, 114 would have been the kind of the, the pre, the 
the, the, the before part, the prequel, they would have said those first. Then you would have done the Passover. And then after it was all done, 115 to 118 would have been afterwards. And so they're also all grouped together by the fact that many of them include hallelujah in one form or one place or another. Uh, in the case of this psalm, it's at the very end where it says praise the Lord, which is just the way of translating hallelujah, which is why they're called the Hallel Psalms. But they're, they are connected for that reason and are used in that way, so I think they have significance also there. So this is one of the psalms that, in all likelihood, Jesus would have been singing with his disciples after the Passover meal on the way to Garden of Gethsemane, that verse from Matthew 26? Yes, that's what I'm saying. All right. How does—I mean, are we going to see something in here that's going to—with that context, what do you think? I think so. Um, because we are talking about uh, the glory being given to God. And of course, you know, now is the Son of Man glorified. You know, now Jesus is going to glorify the Father through his death on the cross. So we do see that as well. Um, we also will see in the Lord's faithfulness through all of this, which is a big emphasis in this psalm, that even though Jesus will be uh, forsaken, yet he will continue to call on God. Uh, call on the Father, you know, so that he will not be totally um, and utterly despondent, you know what I mean? So, I mean, all of these things are connected here, and we're going to see hints of them. I'm not saying that, you know, this is going to directly, how do you want to say? Well, it's not that it's going to mirror those events of that night, necessarily. Exactly. knowing that Jesus was singing this as he's going forth to his passion does just lend us uh, another way to to look at these, another way to see Christ in the Psalms. That's something we always want to do. These books, these Psalms, testify to Christ. That's what he says. And knowing that that this is his own prayer as he goes toward his suffering and death just adds that flavor to it as we read it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good way of putting it. And the fact that like the middle of the Psalm talks about trusting in the Lord, who is our, our help and shield. You know, that would have been very appropriate, especially in the face of uh, Judas coming to betray him. You know, the very fact that he is about to drink the cup of God's wrath, that sort of thing. So, yes, I mean, it is it is expressive of, I guess you could say, the emotional state of our Lord as he goes to Gethsemane. Let's go ahead and read the text. This is Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us, he will bless us, he will bless the house of Israel, he will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children.
May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. That's our text. That's Psalm 115. Pastor Heidi, give us the big picture view of this psalm. How might we structure it and consider it in stanzas, parts, sections? Yeah, of course, every psalm is going to be, I guess you could say, up to debate as to how exactly it's supposed to break down. But I think probably the, the most basic thing that we can see here is probably to take the first three verses together, maybe the first two, and kind of take that as an expression of giving God the glory. Uh, then we have the four, uh, like three or four through verse eight, uh, talking about the, the folly of idolatry, which we will talk about probably at great length, uh, which then shifts at verse nine to talking about what we should actually trust in, which of course is God. And then at verse 12, it starts talking about why we should trust in him is because he, is he will bless us, he will give increase, and then uh, the psalm kind of closes around verse 16 through 18 with this idea of, you know, just generally praising the Lord, you know, giving thanks to him for what he has done and a desire to continue to praise him. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the specific things as we get into that. But so for that reason, I would say that the psalm as a whole probably has a kind of a five-part structure to it. Um, but again, that's, that's up to debate. We can... We can go back and forth on that. Sure, yeah, I mean, you can you can read a, a number of scholars and, and theologians who may give slightly different structures, but I think that's a helpful way for us to handle it today. So let's let's start, and I, I think the first verse does help set this tone for that first section and for the whole psalm. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Talk about this verse. Okay, so this verse here is expressive of the how do you want to say the 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 main situation that is that the people of God find themselves in here and that's why I try to connect it very closely to at least verse 2 uh, where it says why should the nation say where is their God um, because I think within the context of this psalm although again we can't be 100% for certain I think Israel finds themselves in a very tight situation for some reason um, it may be that they are under attack from the nations, for example, and they're wondering, you know, is God going to be faithful to us kind of a thing? It may be that this was written during the exile, and the nations are basically gloating over them and saying, see, you know, where is your God? Why isn't he helping you? That kind of a thing. But either way, I think generally speaking, we have Israel, you know, God's people, the church, in the midst of a very difficult situation. And so in verse 1 then what they are do what what they are doing is calling out to God saying basically do something Lord not for our sake but rather for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness which of course comes very much from along the lines of the of the prophets who will say you know that God does things for the sake of his holy name, that God is going to do these things for his glory, right? Not necessarily because of his people who have been unfaithful to him, but because he wants to vindicate his righteousness in the eyes of the nations. He will not be proven a liar, basically. Yeah, he's, he's concerned with his reputation. He's concerned with 
keeping his promises so that all the peoples would know that he is faithful, that he is who he says he is. What's striking about that at the same time, that they pray for the Lord to give glory to his own name, whenever the Lord glorifies his name, it is a benefit to his people. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's it's not... I mean, I think that there's the connection, too, as you said, to what happens in the Passion. When God glorifies his name, when the Father glorifies his Son, this is for the sake of bringing salvation to sinners. God keeps his promises, and it ends up being a benefit to the people of God. Well, especially because of the steadfast love and faithfulness, which, of course, are always words which are very commonly attributed to God. You know, he is steadfast love. He is faithfulness. But he's steadfast and faithful towards what? Towards his people, towards his promises. And so the the very fact that God is going to continue to do what he said he's going to do is something that brings glory to his name. So yeah, it's not just that he is making himself look good. It's that he is steadfast to his people, and that's why they can call on him even in the midst of this very difficult situation. Hmm. And so in that difficult situation, other people, whoever that may be, whatever tight spot the people of Israel in, they are mocking the people of Israel and ultimately mocking God by saying, where, where is your God? Why has he abandoned you like this? This is the kind of mockery from the enemies of God that we see throughout the scriptures and throughout the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Well, because for in those days, for the, the pagans, for those who did not believe in God, it's always about a demonstration of power. It's always about what they can see. And if they can't see God doing something, then they think that he's either not going to do it or that he can't. And I really do think this has a lot of parallels to our own time as well, because, you know, we put so much emphasis on what we can see. Like, I have to see it to believe it. You know, I can't just accept this you know, on, on your bare word. Like, I need to have proof. And so I do think that this taunt is still something that we hear even in our own day and age, you know, where is your God in the midst of all of these turmoils, in the midst of all these disasters, in the midst of all of these tragedies, whatever it may be, the nations will still taunt the church and say, where is your God? Hmm. Right. So can you give an example of where you might see that today? Well, I mean, you just think of any major tragedy that happens. Um, You will sometimes get people who will say, for example, there's no point in praying because praying is useless. I know why not do something which is going to actually do something instead of doing something like that. You know, that would be a way of saying, where is your God? Um, You get people who will just basically say that there is no God. Of course, you know, the Psalms talk about that attitude as well. Um, But it is this emphasis on we need to see it to believe it. And that, unfortunately, is a very common thing that comes along with unbelief. It wants to see something in order to accept it. But as Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet still yeah. believe. Yeah, yeah. And what I mean, what, what's striking about this is, so Israel is in this, this difficult situation, whatever it is, and they rightly recognize that this is not a, a political situation or anything like that, but it's actually a theological situation conundrum that they're in. It, it seems that God isn't doing anything, or at least that's what the enemies are saying, and so they call upon the Lord to do something. 
they this psalm rightly recognizes and helps us to recognize the theological realities that are behind all this. So if it looks like, if what our eyes see, if that looks like God's not doing anything, then then what do you do next? Do you do you continue to call on him or do maybe you turn to idols? Maybe that's how we move from from one section of this psalm to the next. I don't is that kind of the that's the flow that I'm seeing. I think you could go that way. I, I but like I said this is this is all something we can go back and forth on. Um you could also especially with verse 3 where it then goes on to say, you know, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. I think it's a way of basically answering that taunt, you know, saying, you know, where is their God? Well, he's in heaven. He he is the one who actually can do something. He is the one who actually will do something, unlike all of the things that you trust in, which they will then go on to describe in very almost sarcastic detail. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, we have a little bit of a, maybe satire here, sarcasm. This is pretty pretty biting. Maybe just talk a little bit about the nature of the way that idolatry is talked about before we look at what it actually says. Oh, it's completely mocked, utterly and mercilessly mocked. And I think that is something that, you know, we can learn something from too. You know, sometimes we, we always want to be nice, that sort of thing. Uh, but I think of like Elijah on uh, Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and just utterly mocking the foolishness of what they're doing. You know, sometimes you just basically have to say things like they actually are. You have to just, you know, be be blunt and be honest about what's happening because this this may be the only way that somebody may come to see the the folly of what it is that they're actually doing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of places in the scriptures where idols are mocked. The example of Elijah on Mount Carmel, I think, is a good one. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 44, goes on an extended uh, narrative prose section about the foolishness of idolatry. I think of some of the some of the names that idols are called. Uh, I think it's in the prophet Ezekiel, where he he basically calls them fecal deities. So the the, the scriptures are never afraid to mock idols. And I think you're right. There's, there's something to that for us that we, we should hold on to. One of the things, and this is something that I've, I've thought about before, that uh, one of the ways we can test for what our idols might be is, is what are you afraid to mock? If you're afraid to mock something, then that might be a sign you've got an idol. Sure. Yeah. Because, you know, if you want to know who you know, what has power over you, you, is it something that you can not make fun of? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think. Well, and I think that that can become a, you know, a diagnostic within our own society and culture. What are the idols around us? What are the things that the world doesn't make fun of? And if you try to make fun of those things, then you fall on the wrong side of, of the world. I think that's one way, not the only way, but it's one way to, to get a handle on what are the common idols among us and how might we speak about those things as, as Christians. Not always mocking, that's not the only way to, to talk against idolatry, uh, but it's not always as out of bounds as we think it is sometimes. Well, and which was my point, you know, sometimes I think we want to be nice, and I think niceness can be an idol too. True. <laughs> but it, it's it's one of these things where we just... Sometimes you just have to say it like it is. All right. And so this psalm is not afraid to say it like it is. So especially beginning in verses 4 and following, idolatry is spoken about, idolatry is mocked. Take us into to this section. Yeah, so basically the, the picture that 
the psalm now presents is the gods of the nations, specifically the idols of the nations, you know, their, their statues, their pictures, that sort of thing, which it describes as silver and gold, the work of human hands. And of course, in those days, idols were very often depicted in very, how do you want to say, humanoid kind of forms. You know, they were depicted as having, you know, a face, a mouth, hands, feet. I mean, we get some of this still today in the idolatry of Hinduism, for example. And, you know, you get those kinds of idols as well. Um, but generally speaking, in those days, you had these basically human-looking figures which were supposed to be representative of their gods. But now the psalm basically goes on to say, well, see, you have this golden idol, you have this little statue, it has a mouth, but it doesn't say anything. It has eyes, but it doesn't see anything. It's just a piece of gold. It's just a piece of whatever. It's not a living god. Right. Right. Well, and I think, I mean, to before we get into all of the details that are spoken about there, just the fact that the idols as silver and gold are the work of human hands mm-hmm. already begins to show the folly, as opposed to the true God who made humanity and all things, idols are the are the reverse. These are something right. that our hands have made. Right. Yeah. Man in his foolishness, uh, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, worships something lesser than himself. <laughs> Whereas we are called to worship that which is actually truly greater than us, the one who actually made us, and the one who made the silver and the gold, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, and this is one of the, the lines of attack that Isaiah takes in Isaiah chapter 44. He, he points out that, you know, you here you are, you cut down this piece of wood, you chopped it in half, you're burning part of it, the other part you're worshiping. That That just doesn't make any sense. That's foolish. That's dumb. I mean, Isaiah is very, very blunt. And similarly, Psalm 115. So here the, the line goes, and you can see the, the parallelism here. Mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. Hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they don't make a sound in their throat. Take us into those details. Well, I mean, if, if we use the language of the Old Testament in comparison with God, you know, God is often described as having things like a mouth and eyes and ears and noses. You know, like when he becomes angry, for example, his nose becomes hot. So this is language that is often used of God. But if God, who made the mouth, you know, God made the mouth, but he can actually speak. And he speaks through the prophets. You know, God can see all things. You know, God can hear all things. God knows all things. You know, he actually does something. But even... But on the other hand, these idols, even though they look like a man, uh, they can't do any of these things. And so even and so those who worship them, calling on them, wanting them to do something for them, are just they're fools because they're they're running after something that can never actually happen. Right? I mean, that's kind yeah. of the general point here. So looking at, at the list, you know, I one thing that I noticed as as the psalmist starts, they have mouths but do not speak, and then goes through the various, you know, eyes, ears, and etc. The last thing that he gets to before verse eight, which kind of helps to summarize, he comes back to that thought of the mouth that they don't make a sound in their throat, and I, I think that's a a poetic device on the one hand. You know, when you start something, if you come back to it at the end, that's a nice way of wrapping things up and showing here here's a here's a poetic unit. At, at the same time. 
the fact that we're talking about what is said with false gods versus the true God, who at the very beginning reveals himself by speaking, that, that, stand, that, that seems to be more than a poetic device mm-hmm. that we're emphasizing who's talking here. Is it the true God or is it your idol? And the idol can't, the true God can. The fact that the words come first and, and last seem to be, that seems a pretty big point. I, I think so too. And I think the, the word that's used here is actually kind of interesting because it's the same word that gets used in Psalm 1, for example, to talk about a righteous man um, meditating on the law. In other words, it's this this way of talking kind of in a low undertone, almost kind of like murmuring or mumbling. Um, and I think what makes that so interesting is that these idols can't even make the slightest sound. They can't even mutter. They can't even mumble. They can't make any, the, the softest whisper is not, they can't do it. But the living God, when he speaks, things happen. <laughs> so, I mean, and his creation. So, I mean, even even the, the, the least significant bird, even the sparrow has a sound in its throat. You know, it can actually do something. But these dumb idols, they just, they're nothing. They're utterly nothing. And that's kind yeah. of the, the point. That's the mockery that's going on here. They are nothing. And those who trust in them, are idiots. I mean, that's really that's really all the way. I, I have to be as blunt as the psalm is, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So those who trust in them are idiots. They are foolish. And this is something that we've seen in other psalms. We haven't studied every psalm here on Sharper Iron, but we did look at Psalm 14. The one who says in his heart, "There is no God." That's the fool. So I mean, it is it is folly to trust in an idol to to have no God at all, which is ultimately what the idols are. They can't do anything. So there is that matter of of foolishness. And I think we can take it even a step further than that, and that's, I think, what the psalm says. Not only is this, it's just stupid that you're doing this, because look, he can't, this idol really can't do anything, but you're actually going to become like that. So in in worshiping an idol, you become like the idol. And I think that's the, the even bigger theological point that comes up, particularly from Psalm 115, but, but we'll pick up that more on the other side of the break, Pastor Heidi. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're talking about Psalm 115 this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, July 21st. We're studying Psalm 115 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. 
Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we were talking about the stupidity of idolatry, as pointed out here in Psalm 115, and we were digging into verse 8 especially. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So idolatry is, is stupid, and that is very clear throughout the scriptures. It's foolish, it's idiocy. But this, I think, says even more than that, that when you worship an idol, you become like the idol. So to talk more about that reality that we get here in Psalm 115. Well, I think I think it really is a principle that can be applied the other way, too. So I think you can apply it in, in a general sense and say you become what you worship, right? If you worship an idol, you will become like the idol. You will start to think like the idol. You will start to walk in the ways of the idol, which, of course, is the ways of death. But when we worship the Lord we become like him, right? We become conformed to his image. We are shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. You know, to follow him is to be walking in the ways of life and ultimately to become more and more like God in all things. So yeah, this is just kind of the the negative way of expressing it, that if you worship an idol, as foolish as that is, you will ultimately walk in the ways of that idol, which is away from God and into death. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think as you pointed out, the worshiping of whatever you worship, you start to become like that very much applies in the true worship of the true God. And so I, I think you're absolutely right here. I think just with the matter of idolatry, though, the to be as, as specific as we can with this psalm. So an idol can't see. If you engage in idolatry, you will not be able to see. You you won't be able to truly see. I think Jesus' words to the, the Pharisees in John 9 apply there. You know, you think you see, but you don't, because you don't trust in the true God. So if you worship an idol, you won't really be able to see. If you worship, you know, if you worship an idol, you won't really be able to hear all of the, the ways of perceiving the world and, and interacting in this world. They don't make any sense if you worship an idol. And when you worship an idol, you you can't really have true life in this world. And I mean, not even—certainly that's that's true in terms of eternal life. Going toward idolatry takes you eternally into death. But even just in life in this world, life in this world can't really make sense in the truest way because you're worshiping an idol. And I mean, there, I think that's—we need to say that too, I think. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm—and I just to confirm that, I mean, this is exactly Paul's point in Romans chapter 1, Right? Because men have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, because they don't want to believe in God, because they have deliberately turned away from him, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what is the result of that idolatry that they have deliberately turned towards? They have been given up into the lusts of their own hearts. They've been given up into impurity. They start walking in the ways of impurity because that's what their idols are, right? And it expresses itself in the very ways that they act. You know, exchanging natural relations for those contrary to nature, um, filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, you know, gossip, slanders, all of these things flow out of that initial idolatry. And so in that way, they very much become like what they worship, which in this case is not the true God. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and you can look at idolatry throughout history and into our own day and see the various forms of wickedness that 
that come from that kind of idolatry. I mean, in, in the days of, of Israel, the false gods demanded human sacrifice, and, and that happens today with idolatry as well in the form of abortion. And I, I think, you know, you see, you see the idolatry inherent in our day and the blindness in our day. We bring up Romans 1, I think, is right on, and just the, the way that Paul talks about they exchanged the, you know, the natural relations for things that aren't natural, things that should be plainly obvious that you should be able to see very easily, because you're in idolatry, you don't see the obvious things about, for example, men and women and and marriage, things that should be obvious you can't see because of idolatry. And again, this is where the, the bluntness of this psalm and other places in the scriptures I think is helpful for our day and age, so that we would plainly speak the truth in in the with the goal of opening people's eyes to to, fo- to forsake their idols and come to the true God instead. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Pastor Heidi, with with this section too, there, there's one more thing I, I want to pick up and, and see what you think. We've been talk right. we talked about at the beginning that Jesus is likely singing this psalm on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane after the Passover meal, and it, it is very striking to to think about, you know, this section. the The idols don't have mouths, eyes, ears, etc. Our Lord Jesus Christ is God, and He has eyes, mouth, ears. And and what's he doing? As you know, he's got the feet. Where's he walking? He's got the hands. What's he doing with the hands? I think I think, I don't know, but you can you can tell me what you think that we can talk a little bit about the incarnation with this text. Yeah, uh, I think you can do it by extension. <laughs> but I mean, so extend with me then, Pastor. Ex- I'll I'll extend with you here. So the, the fact that Jesus himself, who is God, God in the flesh, you know, God with hands, feet, eyes, ears, all of that sort of thing. Yes, I mean, it is still right for him to say this because ultimately all the false gods, the gods which the Pharisees were going after, the gods which the nations were going after, whatever it may be, you know, they may seem to have mouths, but they don't ultimately speak. But the mouth of Jesus Christ does speak the truth, right? He speaks the words of truth and life. So I think it, it still becomes a contrast then between what is happening with God and his ability to actually do all these things, now also in the flesh in Jesus Christ, and the false gods, you know, the antichrists, as it were, who claim to be God and claim to be able to do all these things, but ultimately cannot. You know, they they may have mouths, as it were, but they don't really speak because they don't speak the words of truth. They may claim to have eyes, but they don't really see and so forth. You know, so I, I think the contrast is still there, even if we are talking about the incarnation, because we are ultimately looking at God as he is, the living God, the one who can do everything, versus the false gods, the ones the nations trust in, who can't do any of these things, right? Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is I think this section of Psalm 115 is anticipating the incarnation happening, that, that here we actually do see God speak to us with, with his very lips, and, and, and in Christ, as he walk, those are the, that's the feet of God walking to his to his cross that that I guess that's the the point I'm trying to get at is this is okay. I think it's anticipating the incarnation. Does that okay, make sense? it does. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'd go a hundred percent that way, but I see what you're what you're doing. So 
I'm just thinking about Jesus as he's singing this, and what's, what is he doing with his mouth? What is he doing with his eyes? What is he doing with his ears, with his hands, with his feet? And then, and as, you, as you pointed out with verse 8, that you become what you worship. Those who follow him, they follow that same path. I mean, Jesus talks about picking up a cross and right. following him. That's, those were just some of the thoughts that were going through my mind as I'm thinking about how this psalm might point us to Jesus. Sure. Well, I, I think I think the how do I want to say? I think the way that I would point towards Jesus in this is the is the trust which it expressed, which we're going to get to in the second half here. You know, because as he's singing these things, he's showing that you know he doesn't trust in all of these other false gods, these other ways that he might have gone. You know, that he might have said, "Well, I'm just not going to go to the cross," for example, which would have been a kind of idolatry. Um, he, he is actually trusting in the Father and following after him, knowing that the Lord will help, that the Father will help him, that, that God will bless him, that you know, just as he blessed the house of Israel, just as he blessed the house of Aaron, all of these things, God will take care of him even as he goes to the cross. So take us into that section of trust. Verses 9 to 11 very much emphasize this matter of trusting in the Lord. What do we see there? Yeah, so we see a kind of threefold repetition. This is a very poetic kind of uh, subsection. Basically, it's calling on these various groups. We can debate whether there's actually two or three here um, to trust in the Lord because he is the one who helps. He is the one who protects. He is the one who will deliver from every trouble, You know, which was especially helpful in the midst of Israel's troubles, whatever they were right now. Uh, because God will act. All those idols, they can't act. There's no point in trusting in them. That's silly. That's foolish. But trust in the Lord who will actually help you and protect you, because I think that's the kind of the logical transition here. Yeah, absolutely. The The Lord is the one who truly speaks, sees, hears, etc. And so he is the one who is worthy of your trust because he can actually do something. He actually can help you. He actually can protect you. Mm-hmm. You said maybe two or three groups, mm-hmm. and, and you said we can debate, and I know you just love to debate, Pastor Heidi. It's true. But we might, we probably agree on this one. Maybe not. I don't know. So what are two or three groups? Why do you say that? Well, the, clearly you have at least two groups, right? You have because, I mean, these, these verses are all structured very similarly. They're highly parallel. You have Israel talking about Israel generally, you know, the Israel of God. And you have the house of Aaron, which would be the priests, right? The, those who are descended from Aaron, you know, that sort of thing. Now, the debate is, does you who fear the Lord refer to those first two groups together or does it refer to a third group, like the God-fearers of the New Testament? That's the question. What do you think? I tend to think there's just two, but you can go whatever direction you want. I, I think I think it makes sense that, that there, there are two, that o, o Israel and O House of Aaron then become inclusive. They're all those who fear the Lord. That's what it, what does it mean to be a part of Israel and to be a part of the house of Aaron? What, what unites that together? What does it mean to be a part of the people of God? It means to be those who fear the Lord. Yeah. So I think it just becomes a poetic way of saying all y'all who trust in the Lord. Fantastic. That's right. That's right. Why, why the fear of the Lord? Why, why, I mean, in the context of what we've been talking about, and, and this is obviously something that is a, 
a common way of identifying God's people in the Old Testament as those who fear the Lord. Right. But how does that fit this context particularly? Well, those who actually fear him, those who follow him, those who call on him as their God, that sort of thing. They don't fear the idols. They don't trust in them. Rather, they trust in the living God, and they look to him, and, you know, they they fear him. I mean, fear is such a kind of a wide word to kind of express all of these things together, right? You know, not only just being afraid of his power, afraid of what he can do, but also just to respect him, to tr- love him. All of those things are kind of encompassed in that word fear. Mm. So as the psalm continues then to verses 12 and following, we, we start to see how God has kept his promises, how God has proved himself to be a trustworthy God. Help us into verses, let's take 12 and 13. Okay. Yeah, the, the main emphasis of 12 and 13, of course, is the blessing, because, I mean, the word bless is repeated four times here. Um, but the, the, the main idea is that the Lord has remembered us in the past. You know, he has done all of these things for us. He has always kept us in mind. He has been faithful. He has been steadfast. And with that in mind, knowing what God has done, we know what he is also going to do, which is to bless, to bless the house of Israel, bless the house of Aaron, bless those who fear the Lord. So we get this repetition again, you know, and, and it adds a little bit to it with the small and the great. One thing that I do think is interesting is that, um, especially when we go into verse 14, and it talks about, you know, may the Lord give you increase, that sort of thing. We'll talk about that a little bit differently. But it is also this sense of adding to you know, may the, may the Lord add to you, you and your children, would be maybe another way to, to, to translate that. And so blessing often involves this kind of giving of something, that the Lord will give us, that he will add something to us that we didn't have before. And in this case, it will be the blessings of uh, deliverance, the blessings of salvation, the blessings of life. He will add all of these things to us because he has done it before. He's re- he remembers us. He has, he's done it for his people before. He's not going to stop now, right? Hmm. So going along that line of, of increase, I mean, maybe we could go back to the promise given to Abraham about sure. the, you know, here comes the, the child, and he will make them into a great nation. Is maybe that's something that's in view there with the, the talk of increasing? Well, increase would... In- yeah, I mean, more will be added to the nation. I mean, it could also just be, I mean, in Old Testament terms, just a physical increase, right? Sure. Uh, the blessings of uh, more possessions, you know, a good harvest, more children, is it would be one of those blessings as well. Um, so just this idea that God is going to give to his people more than what they had before as an expression of his love for them. Um and I think that that's, we can still speak that way, even in the New Testament, without falling into a kind of like prosperity gospel or anything like that, in the sense that even if we don't have everything that we might want, you know, and our, and our sinful desires, that doesn't mean that the Lord hasn't added something to us. He has added to us life. He has added to us forgiveness. He has added to us salvation. He has given us increase in all of these things. And it will continue to increase. 
You know, we can pray for an increase of faith, for example. We can pray for an increase in the spiritual gifts, for example. God does continue to bless his people. And that comes in the form of, you know, these these various kinds of increase. That may even include physical increase, too. <laughs> I, I think so. I mean, I, you know, like you said, we, we want to avoid the the false doctrine inherent in the prosperity gospel, sort of a name it and claim it kind of idea that right. my life in Christ is going to be all health, wealth, happiness. We want to, we definitely want to avoid that. But at the same time, we shouldn't forget that God does give us our daily bread, and usually a lot more than our daily bread. I mean, like, right. I, I think we, we don't want to forget that reality as well. Right, right, exactly. Well, and, and I was just thinking also of Paul, you know, he talks about being in this life is more needful for you, but to be with Christ is better. So, you know, to die is gain. <laughs> There's increase even in death. You know, blessed, is, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Um, you know, the, there is always this sense of blessing, this sense of increase that comes with what the Lord is doing for his people. We just don't want to take it into carnal territory, which unfortunately... Uh, prosperity gospel usually does. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Looking at verse 15 in connection with that, you know, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. You think about, think about maybe what Paul says in Romans 8. If, if God gave you his son, mm-hmm. won't he graciously give you all things? Yeah. And, and so here, you know, who's who are the one that we're asking, who is the one we are asking to bless us? It's the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. He made everything. Mm-hmm. And so certainly the matter of blessings, small, large, whatever they may be, are, are not too small for him. Mm-hmm. Ask and ye will receive, right? I mean, that's what he says with prayer. Right. You know, it, and, and so maybe, like again, maybe with while we avoid the false doctrine of the prosperity gospel, maybe when we pray, we should expect him to answer and not always... Sometimes I, it seems like we sort of couch it and like, well... I'm going to ask you this, Lord. I don't really think you're going to give it to me, but I'm going to ask it. And maybe we should expect him to answer. Right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We should be bold in our prayers. I mean, how often do we come to the Lord and say, like, you know, if it be your will, and we always try to couch it in this very pious-sounding language, but what we really mean by it is, like, please, you know, would you please do it? I don't, I don't think you really want to do it, but I really want you to do it. And so if you would just do it for me, Lord, you know, it's this, it's this kind of like whining and begging with God when we don't have to, we don't have to whine and beg God. We can come to him in faith and say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, mm-hmm. asking you shall receive, you know, yeah. faith can move mountains. We shouldn't be afraid of that kind of language either. Yeah. Yeah, as, as dear children come to their dear Father, this is how we come before God, with the confidence that our Father will give us exactly what is good. We should expect it, we should ask for it, and, and receive it from His hand with great thanksgiving. Now, as, as the psalm continues, starts to come to a conclusion, verse 16 says, "...the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man." What, what does that mean, Pastor Heidi? I think that this is another way of expressing... And 16 and 17, I think, are going to take a little bit to unpack here. But uh, 16, I think, is a way of expressing the great power that God has. Um, If we think in terms of the heavens above being the Lord's heavens, um, being this idea that, you know, that is... I don't know how to put it. 
God's territory, so to speak. This is, it is above us, that sort of thing. Like we, we can't, if we're standing here on earth, looking up into the sky, this is obviously something that's far above us. Well, that's where the Lord is. He is far above us in power and ability to do all of these things. And the earth, he has also graciously given to the children of man. But it's, I, I think it also could be a way of saying, you know, that the, anything that's down here below is not going to give us the same kind of help. Does that make sense? I think so. I mean, so in the in the context of the psalm, then maybe you think back toward the the idolatry that the, mm-hmm. the heavens are the Lord's heavens. He is the one in whom you can trust. That which comes from from man is isn't going to help you. Something like that. Yeah, I think that would be one way of taking it. Um, and I think it makes the most sense within the context of everything that's going on here, so that we are again setting up this contrast. Um, kind of as a way of summarizing everything that's just gone before. Uh, but then it's going to go on to, you know, one more thought. Uh, or Basically, it's going to transition from this into talking about praising the Lord again to kind of tie it all back together. So you kind of have the psalm in reverse, but using some different language to, to do it. Okay, so so with that thought in mind then, what is what is verse 17 saying? The dead do not praise the Lord. Mm-hmm nor do any who go down into silence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this this we have to take just kind of at face value and think about the dead. You know, a dead body does not speak, right? Uh, we go to a funeral, we don't expect the, the, the person who's in the casket to just get up and stop and to start speaking. Um, that... And and not and not speaking in this case means that at least from this earthly perspective, uh, they no longer praise the Lord, because it is the living who have the living voice who actually offer up praise to God. And the reason why I'm kind of couching it like this and trying to emphasize that you know this is an earthly perspective, this is just kind of an everyday kind of way looking at this, is I don't want people to come away from this and saying, well, does that mean that the dead are dead or that they're not praising God? When we see in parts like the New Testament, for example, especially in the book of Revelation, where they are, you know, praising God, where they are worshiping him in eternity. So, you know, where, where's, how do these things fit together? And I think that's what we have to keep in mind. This is just speaking in a purely earthly kind of what my physical eyes right now can see kind of a thing. The dead do not speak, and for that reason, they cannot praise the Lord. Does that make sense? I think so. I when I but here's this is the way I was thinking about this this section mm-hmm. was was more thinking. You know, when Jesus has his conversation, his controversy with the Sadducees, and they want to talk about the resurrection of the dead and try to disprove it, mm-hmm. and and he obviously tells them you're wrong. You don't know what the Bible says, and he his proof text for the the resurrection is from Exodus 3, where God says that he is, you know, the the Lord says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so right. Jesus says, well, he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. That's kind of the way that I was thinking about these two, 17 and 18 together, that this right. is a reminder that that God, the true God, he is the God of the living. And, and so the, okay. those who those who are, are dead, who have praised, I, or who have worshipped idols, they're, they're really dead, and they're not going to praise the Lord. But we... We're we're the living, and so we are going to praise Him now and forever. That's kind of the way that I was taking it. The, you know, God's the God of the living, not of the dead. Yeah, I could see that, um, and I think you could get some 
idea of that is like there's the, the oldest translations of the Old Testament, for example, the Septuagint and the Vulgate. Uh, they both translate silence as hell, um, which would kind of be a confirmation of what, you know, your the direction you're going. But I mean, you do see this idea expressed in other places in the Psalms. Um, Psalm 6, for example, says, uh, verse 5 says, For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. Um, and so that's why I'm, I think that's where I'm coming from, where I was trying to get at basically sure. saying that, you know, from our perspective, just in a purely earthly sense, the dead are silent. And for that reason, they don't praise the Lord in the way that the living do. Right. But right. that doesn't, right. but that doesn't deny that those who die in the Lord actually truly live to him. It's just that sure. purely earthly way of looking at things. Right, right. So how does how does Psalm Psalm how does verse eighteen then serve to to wrap this up and conclude it? Yeah, so it basically comes back around to you know the the praise that we are going to give to God, you know, because this whole this whole Psalm in a sense is one long praise to the Lord, even as it denigrates idols, you know, even as it shows how foolish it is to worship idols, how foolish it is to follow after them. It is ultimately from beginning and end a blessing also of the Lord and a praising of him. And that's why it's only fitting for it to end with hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Oh, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and then again, Pastor Heidi, with about a minute left, help us to just to wrap this whole Psalm up, this hallelujah Psalm. What do we need to take away from Psalm 115? That we should praise the Lord guy. <laughs> because he is the one who has helped us. He is the one who can help us. He is the one who will help us, and we can trust in him for that reason. And we see that above all in the help that he has given to us in Jesus Christ, his son, by dying for us to give us the increase and the blessing of life and salvation and forgiveness. So praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. He has been helping us today to study Psalm 115. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Not to us be the glory, but to the name of God. He gives glory to his name as he brings salvation to us, and that is what he has done through his Son, Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him. Hallelujah. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 115, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk again next week.